let him wonderfully preach my sermon in advance. I love when that happens. So hopefully uh, you were singing with faith. Hopefully you were you were confessing all of those things which I'm now going to preach to you. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. The ascension of Jesus Christ. In the account of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, hear God's word. Now, when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for. Uh, the blessed doctrine which is presented to us here. And we ask you that now by the preaching, uh, we might be encouraged by the very things that we just sung together. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to these verses in Acts, the immediate occasion of them is the day uh, in which Jesus was giving this instruction to the apostles He was teaching them uh, things concerning the kingdom. He was speaking to them things concerning the kingdom. And he was telling them to wait for the promise of the Father. And uh, and that was Jesus' final day with with them. And and even his final minutes with them. And, and, uh, and, And so having instructed them in that way, he then is taken up into glory, into the presence of the Father. That's... What we read in verses 9 through 11. That's what we read at the end of Luke's gospel. It's what we call his ascension. The doctrine of the ascension of Christ. Something which admittedly in the gospels doesn't get too much prominence. Or even here in Acts. Just a few verses at most. But which uh, we, we all recognize or should recognize is recorded in the Gospels. It's recorded here in Acts. Uh, it's referred to uh, in its doctrinal significance as well as its, its factual basis in uh, the writings of Paul. Uh, at least one instance of which we'll see as well as Hebrews this evening. Let, let me just say uh, and acknowledge it is admittedly a lesser known uh, doctrine. Uh, I don't, I don't like to admit this sort of thing, but just to relate with you a little bit, I, I had to pull Burkhoff off my shelf and brush up a little bit myself. Now, what's the ascension about? It's not something we talk about that much. It's not something we consider uh, all that much in its doctrinal significance. Well, well, let this sermon be for you what Burkhoff was for me, a, a refresher on the subject. Let me notice for you its, its place in the historic creeds, which we recite here on a monthly basis. I believe in Jesus Christ, that he ascended into heaven, not just that he was raised from the dead or that later on he will come again in glory, but that he ascended into heaven. That's that's what we confess as a church. That's the Apostles Creed or the Nicene Creed that he ascended into heaven. And so it's a basic article of the Christian faith. It's a basic matter of Christian confession. It's something that we, along with the first Christians, Confess that we believe about Jesus Christ, not just that he was raised, but that he was raised up into heaven. And from there, he will come in glory to judge the wicked and the dead. Really, in that sense, you see, it's something that's pivotal to everything that we confess and believe about Jesus Christ. Well, 
let us consider together here its significance, well, its factual basis and then its significance in light of uh, its place here in Acts at the founding of the church, the founding at least of the New Testament church. I was reminded uh, actually yesterday at the men's breakfast by someone that we need to be careful. The church existed under the old covenant. So let me be clear. It's the new covenant church we're talking about. The church that we read about in Acts. Well, I want to divide this under two headings, the first of which is the history of the ascension. And then the second of which is uh, the aspects of the ascension. And that uh, by that, I intend to discuss the theological significance, the way in which it becomes an article and the basis of Christian belief. Well, begin with the history of the ascension. Can we all agree as Christian people that the ascension is something that actually happened? That Jesus Christ was not only raised on the third day, but that he was actually taken up into heaven. And, uh, and, and, and that, is, that is precisely what the Gospels, that's precisely what Acts, that's precisely what Paul tells us in the New Testament. That is something that we believe. Well, what are we saying that we believe? What do we believe? Well, we believe that he was taken up into glory on this day when he gave his final instruction to the apostles. That's the setting. We also say that we believe, along with Luke, that this occurred at the end of a period of 40 days. In other words, the day that Jesus was raised was not the day that he ascended into heaven. But something occurred in the meantime, in the, in the midst of this 40 days, that, that there were a series of appearances. Uh, that's actually what they're called in the Gospels, that Jesus appeared to them. And we read in Luke, as well as in John, that they were locked away in a room and then Jesus appeared to them. And we get the same sense on the Emmaus Road. Along they're going, and there he is, and then, poof, he's gone. Now, we get there uh, something of a sense of his resurrected body. He was born a natural man, but he was raised a spiritual man. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 44. That's true of Jesus Christ. That's, that'll be true of you. He had a body, but it was a spiritual body. You say, what's that like? Well, to the disciples, he appeared like a ghost, and yet he said, look at my hands, touch them. I can't explain it to you. It's, it's something of a mystery. What does it mean to say a, a spiritual body? And yet that's what he assumed. And so he was capable. You, you know, the Bible doesn't say too much about this. And so I, I'm trying to imagine this for you, what, what it's expressing to us. He was capable of going in and out of glory in the midst of these 40 days. He wasn't just... Uh, if, I, if I could put it this way, hanging out with the disciples. John says, he dwelt among us. Well, it wasn't like that anymore. He wasn't just dwelling with them in the flesh, but he was going in and out. He was appearing, then he was disappearing. He was in glory, he was out of glory. That's the sense we get. So they were temporary visitations. They were brief. There he was, and there he wasn't. He was gone. And the point is, here's the last one. This is the last time he appeared to them and dwelled in their midst. In the midst now is the resurrected spiritual Lord. And it was the final time. What was the nature of his ascent? Well, it was bodily. It was his body that went up. This is something that was a... A physical occurrence. It wasn't a phantom. It wasn't a vision. This is something that actually happened. So that we could say, uh, though Jesus' divine essence fills the whole of the universe, and it does. 
What we're describing here that we believe with regard to the ascension is that his body, which dwelt among us in the incarnation and that was raised in the resurrection, is physically taken up into glory, into heaven, and that that very body is now in heaven until he appears again in glory, bodily. It was also something, let us see, that was visible. And this distinguishes it from the other bodily appearances in that 40-day period. Now they were, uh, they were able to actually behold with their very eyes Jesus being taken up into glory. And they were, well, they were so preoccupied and amazed with what they saw, they were actually still gazing into heaven once he was gone when the two men appeared. It was visible. It was also local. Earth is a place, so is heaven. Heaven is a place. I know that's difficult to comprehend, but it's true. It's a place where the physical body of Jesus now dwells. He occupies that place. It's the place where he went. It's the place where he now resides. And it's the place from whence he will come again in glory. Just as he, in just the same manner as he went, so he will come. It's also final, at least uh, until he comes again. In other words, no more is he to dwell among men. This time he goes for good until the end of the age. He will not appear to his disciples visibly again. Now, as Paul says, his life is, he- is, is hid in heaven with God. And now uh, we live by faith, not by sight. You see, when you say that, you have to realize in some sense that, that these disciples did live by sight for a time, but then they had to occupy the, the, the station of faith, which all Christians now occupy in the meantime. What are we saying when we say that we live by faith, not by sight? We say, well, we can't see Jesus with the eyes, and yet we believe him just as surely as he stood before us. But if we are like Thomas, if we have to lay eyes on Jesus, if we cannot believe unless we see, well, then uh, we'll be in a sorry state. As sorry as he was. Blessed are those who do not see and still believe. Well, here's something else. The cloud. He was taken up in a cloud. The sense is almost that the cloud itself became the mode of transportation, if you could put it that way. The vehicle by which he got where he was going. Uh, but uh, the, the cloud uh, is something that, let us see, is a common feature in other theophanies. A theophany is a display of God's glory. Here, the glory of Jesus Christ appeared to the disciples in a way uh, even more glorious than in his resurrection. His going to the Father was accompanied with the, the cloud of glory. We find that it rested upon him in the transfiguration. And there his glory appeared to the apostles. That's the first uh, in these stages of theophanies, F.F. Bruce calls them. Here's the second. He's taken up in the cloud of glory, much as uh, Israel was led by the cloud of glory, or the cloud of glory uh, uh, inhabited the temple or the tabernacle. Here is a manifestation visibly of the glory of God. And, 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 And the third stage in this succession is coming again on the cloud with glory. Here is a pointer not only to his own glory as the son of God, but also the glory of his ascension. It was a glorious event, just as glorious as these other these other things which I mentioned. 
We also read that he was received into heaven or he was taken up into heaven. I think we read both things. Yes. Verse nine, the cloud received him out of their sight and he was taken up from you into heaven. In other words, well, we're answering the question, how did he get there? How did he get into heaven? Well, Jesus Christ in his resurrection didn't take it by storm or force his way in. What we read rather is that heaven gladly welcomed him as the resurrected Lord. Hebrews puts it like this. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Now, let's see. Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 14, seeing that that we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He's passed through the heavens. You see, that's describing exactly what we have here. What was he doing in the cloud? Well, he was passing through the heavens. Where was he going into heaven? Or in 924, we read this again, the book of Hebrews. For Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are mere copies of the truth, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. He's been taken up. He's entered. How? By passing through, by being taken up in a cloud who brought him there, who received him. It was God himself. That's the answer. God, the father who delighted in the son. Who delighted that he should be a sacrifice for sin. Yes, but having done so, having made him a propitiation, a sacrifice for our sin, a sin offering. The father delighted now to honor the son in raising him up even into his own presence and to receive him gladly into heaven. This signifies the father's delight In the work of the son, his acceptance of his work as the mediator on earth, he appeared like this, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He came in the lowliness and the humility of our flesh. He was a humble servant, but now declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Romans chapter one, verses three and four. That's the gospel. He comes to us in in the lowly form of a servant. Those 30 years he dwelt among us and even as he dies upon the cross and lays in the grave. But once God raises him up and you see, we're not just saying that he raised him up and placed his feet on the ground, but he raised him up into heaven. What the what the Lord is declaring about his son, the father declaring about his son is that here is my son with power. We are meant no more to see the weakness of Jesus Christ, but the strength and the power of his humanity. And it's the father who's declaring it to us, even as he receives him into his presence. And so what we're saying when we confess that I believe that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven is that his earthly labors have finished as well as the work of humiliation. Now he's taken up the work of exaltation. No more does he deal with men by dwelling among them in the flesh. You remember what we read in John chapter one. That uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and so on. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the incarnation. That's the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Not just that he died on the cross, but even before that, he became one like us. He dwelt among us. He appeared to them even after his resurrection in bodily form in his exalted state. But all that's done. All that's finished. This aspect of his work has ended. And now he is taken up to dwell in the presence of the father. In heaven. Now, this has important doctrinal implications, for instance, at the table. 
it grieves me to some extent to do this, but I must dispute my beloved Luther. Luther who said, and Lutherans who still say that Jesus bodily dwells at the table. Jesus said, this is my body. And so we are to believe that the body of Christ is present in the sacrament. Well, how so? Luther says it's a mystery to be received by faith. Well, I admire Luther's faith, though I can't agree with him, with, with Reformed theologians. No, Jesus bodily is in heaven. And with Calvin, I say that he is spiritually present in the supper, though his body dwells in heaven. Again, his earthly ministry has ended. His body is taken up into heaven. And that's where his body is and will be until he returns again in glory on the last day. Something else that we find here are the angels or the two men. Who were they? Uh, I read in Alexander that that perhaps they were Moses and Elijah. You, You know, we say they're angels. I just automatically say that. And then I realize it doesn't say angels. It says two men. They were heavenly messengers. So we assume that they're angels, though we can't be sure who they were. At any rate, it's clear the reason that they were there, even as Jesus was taken out of their view, was to testify to them the reality of what they saw, just as we find in the post-resurrection appearance of the angels to Mary and the others when they looked for his body at the grave. They were heavenly witnesses, heavenly messengers, instructing these men as to the significance of what they witnessed. These bewildered disciples were now encouraged and strengthened by the two witnesses. What did they say? Well, in essence, there was a command and a promise. The command comes in the form of, the que- of a question, as it often does in Scripture. They say, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? In other words, what they're really saying is, stop gazing. Stop gazing. Now, I'll have occasion to expand upon that later on. That's the command. Stop gazing. The promise is this. Don't you realize that he's coming back? Don't you realize that, well, he told you many times that he would come again in glory. That's what you're to look for now, for him to return to you in just the way that that he went. And by the way, don't you remember what he had just said, that you were to wait for the promise of the Father? In other words, you're not to look for his coming again in glory just now, but you're to look for the coming of the promise of the Spirit, when, where, whereby you will be endowed with power from on high. That's the message, in essence, of these two heavenly messengers. And that's the history of the ascension. What about its significance or the aspects of the ascension? Several things could be said here. The first is this. Clearly, this is a demonstration of power. God not only raised Jesus Christ, the body of Jesus Christ from the grave, but into heaven itself. Do you understand and do you appreciate how this completes the picture or fills out the picture? Of what God was doing when he raised up his son. He raised him even into heaven itself. This is what we read in Ephesians. And again when we think of the resurrection. We ought to think of it in this more complete way. Not just as involving his being raised up from the grave. But as involving his being lifted up into heaven. Paul says. Let's see. Ephesians chapter 1. That, that, the, that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling. He's praying for the disciples in this way or the Christians in this way. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and placed his feet, planted his feet on the earth? No. When he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He raised him into even into heaven itself, far above all principalities and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. You see, Paul is saying this is a demonstration of power. It was a demonstration of power now, the greatest power the world had ever seen or known. The amazing thing Paul is actually saying is that that is the same power which is at work in you, spiritually raising you into the presence of God. Ephesians chapter chapter 2 verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up together and made us to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, that's a spiritual reality, but it's actually true that faith places you where Christ is in the heavenly places. And all of that is a demonstration of heavenly power. It's heavenly power in the life of Christ. It's heavenly power in the life of the believer. And this is what let me let me try to expand upon something I've been trying to say. This is something that makes the resurrection of Jesus unique. You see, in, in one sense, you really can say that Jesus is the first man to be raised in Scripture. You say, well, what about these other occurrences? You have Lazarus and others who are raised. Well, it, it's more it, what happens is more like a resuscitation. They're brought back to life, but they still die. Well, Jesus, when he's raised, isn't just brought back to life in an eternal way. But you see, as a result of his resurrection, he is raised out of the grave into heaven. That's the complete picture. And that's what, make, that's what makes his resurrection unique, as one who was dead, one who laid in the grave, truly, is bodily raised into heaven by the power of the Father. Not only that, but the power of the Father is that which transformed the flesh, the human flesh of Jesus Christ. His body is no longer earthly. It's no longer fit to dwell here, but heavenly. That's the proper abode of the flesh of Jesus Christ. It was not suitable now that he was raised that he should dwell on earth anymore. That's why he appears here and there. But his proper home is heaven as the glorified Christ. And so the power is seen not only in his being raised, but in the transformation of the body of Jesus Christ. And and one of the reasons that that is significant for us to see is not only so that we might adore the blessed body of Jesus Christ that was raised, but so that we might see in him, as Paul says in Hebrew in, in first Corinthians 15, uh, a foretaste, the first fruits of what is to come, that just as Jesus Christ is raised, so will you. So your bodies will be changed after the likeness of his. Your natural bodies will be glorified. They'll become spiritual like his is. They'll be transformed. Not only that, but they'll be lifted into heaven itself. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the pattern of the hope of the believer. Another aspect of the ascension is that it gave a visible proof of his resurrection. Hence the two men and the apostles after them. What were they witnesses to? They were not only witnesses to the humanity, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but to his ascension. And thus we're not surprised to find Peter preaching in his Pentecost sermon, immediately following this, the ascension of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2 Verse 33, I read this last time. He says, therefore being exalted. Well, let me read verse 32 first. This Jesus God has raised of which we are all witnesses. That's the significance. They, they beheld his glory. They beheld his ascension. 
Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Beyond that, and this is really the key point, this will occupy us for the remainder of our time. It is the ascension, I think, more than anything else that clarifies the nature of the relation that Christ sustains to the church in the present dispensation. I'll say that again. It clarifies the nature of the relation he sustains to the church in the present dispensation or the present age. This is the key point here. Here's what we read. That Jesus Christ in his ascension or as a result of his ascension, that his station is now heavenly and our station is now earthly. That's the reality of the New Testament church. And that will remain the reality until he returns. And thus the question naturally arises and, and we can see it even uh, beginning to formulate the question, formulating the mind of these apostles as they're gazing into heaven. Well, what now? What's our relation to him now to be now that he's been taken from us now that he will not appear to us again? He is there. We are here. Well, I, I could I could uh, put it in the form of a question. Do you find this to be tragic? Do you feel sorry for these men and for yourselves? Do you wish that he was dwelling among us here in the flesh? Do you find that you wish he hadn't gone? I wish he never went to heaven, Jesus. I wish he would stay here with us, dwelling among us. You see, that's what was occurring to these men. And that's what might occur to us as well. Or I could rephrase the question. Now that he's gone, what's he doing? Has he forgotten all about us? Has he left us to ourselves? You see, that's the temptation. The temptation is that we forget about him. Well, has he left us? Has he forgotten about us? Hardly. You remember what Jesus says to the disciples in John. It's to your advantage that I go. For in going to the Father, he's still busy about his work as the mediator of the church. He's working for us in ways that he could never do on earth. That's a point I want to emphasize and stress. He's working for us in ways he could never do on earth. He's exalted now, enjoying a new station. And we are enjoying a new station as a result. He's doing things now in heaven that he never could do on earth. You see, on earth he was a humble servant. He was limited in innumerable ways. But now he is enjoying the station as the exalted son of God and son of man. And this is to the church's immeasurable advantage. And oh, that we would see it. Let us explore his station in heaven. There he is seated Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, he's enthroned. He's invested with a heavenly authority above all principalities and power. He's exalted, in other words, to the highest station conceivable. To put this in terms of theological language, the ascension of Jesus Christ results in the session of Jesus Christ. He is ascended and thus seated. He assumes his proper place as the mediatorial king of heaven and earth. All authority on heaven and earth is now his with special reference to the church. Did you notice that in Ephesians chapter 1? He's ruling all things, but especially with an eye to the church. He's seeing to her welfare, causing her to advance and progress. He's the king. That's what I'm saying. Now Jesus Christ has taken up his place as the king of heaven and earth, and especially with reference to the church. He is, if you like, now building a kingdom. He began to do so on earth, but now he's doing so in ways he never could before. 
building a kingdom. That's what he's doing. That's what he's continuing to do. He hasn't forgotten about us. If anything, we could say, as his love brought him here to dwell among us on the the errand of the Father to reclaim sinners, so now he's taken up a new errand. So now he's gone back into the presence of the Father. Why? Not just because he was eager to get back there now that the work was done. No, because he's eager to carry on the work now in this new aspect. It was the love of Christ for sinners and for the church that brought him back into the presence of the Father. That's his errand now. And that also tells us the nature of the kingdom that he's building. It is a kingdom which is spiritual. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's heavenly for he reigns from heaven. And so it's spiritual for he he rules by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. So then he is called and he is the head of the church who reigns from heaven. If you're a Christian, that means he's reigning over you. You say, uh, your kingdom come, thy will be done. What are you saying? You're saying, let the rule and the reign of Jesus Christ reign over me. Again, that's what a Christian is. He's reigning over you. He's using all of his power and authority, which is infinite, to preserve and to protect us. To subdue our enemies, to cause us to triumph and to to prosper. If you're familiar with the shorter catechism, that's the kind of language that you have. Well, perhaps you will tell me that it seems that the opposite is true. I don't feel like I'm prospering. I don't feel like my enemies are being subdued. If, If anything, I feel like my enemies are being emboldened. I feel as though the church is suffering. I feel as though the church is languishing. Ah, But don't forget... It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. Yes, they may kill the body, Jesus says. But what about the soul? You see, that's a question which has reference not only to our salvation, but to the very nature of the kingdom of God. Well, what about the soul, Jesus says? Isn't that the most important thing of all? Burkhoff, speaking of the kingdom of God, says this. Fundamentally, the, the term kingdom of God denotes an abstract rather than a concrete idea. Namely, the rule of God established and acknowledged in the hearts of sinners. The rule of God and established in the hearts of sinners. Well, once you see that's what the kingdom of God is like and how Jesus exercises his heavenly authority in the affairs of men, you realize that this isn't a kingdom that you can overthrow. It isn't a kingdom, certainly, that you can overthrow by earthly powers or earthly means, nor even By spiritual means. Oh, you can kill the man. You can burn down the church. You can set his followers fleeing. All this has happened many times, much of which we'll read about in Acts. And yet, what you need to realize is that none of that has the least to do with the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. What we find is that in spite of all of that, the kingdom of God is progressing. It's going on. It's advancing. It's growing. For Jesus sets up his rule from heaven in the hearts of men. And he reigns from heaven. He does so, as we read in Acts, by the preaching. And by working faith and repentance and a heart to follow him. By converting sinners, by drawing them into the church. By uniting them to himself. By preserving them in faith until he comes again or until they die, whichever comes first. Oh yes, the day is coming when he will appear before Uh, All men for the eye to see and he will visibly set up his reign in such a way that none then will be able to deny it. But even the unbeliever will bend the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. 
That day is coming, and that is part of the message too. It's part of the apostolic preaching. But until that day comes, the kingdom proceeds in the spiritual, heavenly way in the lives of men, even in our own lives. Let us see that it is a spiritual and a heavenly kingdom and that it is a, that our king is one who reigns from heaven and that we, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, our life is hid with him in heaven, soon to be revealed on earth. But let me say something else about his station in heaven. Not only is he, I, I find this in the hymn that we, we sung a little earlier, not only is he our king who is reigning from heaven, but he's also our great high priest. Now, that isn't primarily in view here in Acts, but it must be said. And certainly it's the great emphasis in Hebrews. What's he doing now that he's passed through the heavens and entered into heaven itself as the resurrected and ascended Lord, seated on the throne in heaven, daily ministering there in the heavenly heavenly tabernacle, interceding before the throne of grace? What's he doing there? Well, the whole of his life and the whole of his ministry is taken up with the church. That's what a priest is. A priest is someone who's taken from among men to represent men. And it's as a priest we read in Hebrews and which we discover as we go on in the Christian life that he supplies all her spiritual wants and needs by his grace. He is daily ministering to her from heaven pouring out the Holy Spirit, stirring up every grace, causing her to advance in faith and sanctification, keeping her from falling into sin, keeping her from apostatizing. And if she is to fall, which no doubt she will, I'm speaking of the church, then by repentance he causes her to rise again and so on. He is preserving, he is protecting, he is sustaining the church. How? By his grace. He's your great high priest who's in heaven. That's what he's doing. He is the one who is preserving the faith of the church. Now, I'll quote Luther here in a favorable fashion. He said, if it depends upon me, I would fall just like that. But it doesn't depend upon me. My faith is ever sustained and supported by my great high priest who is in heaven. That's why you can never stamp out Christianity. That's why you can never get rid of the church. That's why you can never overthrow this kingdom. And yet, we think of the station of the church as she is described in Hebrews. The church is not so much like Israel, the theocracy. The church is more like Israel wandering through the wilderness. And who is to say in the wilderness what trials she may face? Read Acts. You'll read all about trials. Read Hebrews. He says, as a form of encouragement, none of you have suffered to the point of death. Well, that's very helpful, isn't it? Nevertheless, these were a suffering people. They were being persecuted. He said many of them have suffered the loss of property. They, they, uh, they had suffered all kinds of things uh, short of death. Read the whole history of the church. You will find trials that will amaze you and frighten you. Read Fox's book of martyrs. But what do you see in spite of it all? You see that the church goes on. I would even go beyond that. She not only goes on, she triumphs. She prospers. She conquers. The saints are supported and strengthened through it all. Some of the greatest testimonies of faith occur in the flames of fire. Who is it that strengthens the saints in their trials? It's Jesus Christ. It's our great high priest in heaven. That's the only explanation. But you see, 
How did Jesus, who dwelt among us, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Mary, how did he ever end up in heaven? How did he ever take up his station in heaven as our great high priest before the throne of grace? Here's the answer. The ascension. It's by the ascension that Jesus Christ passed through the heavens and entered into heaven and now takes up his high heavenly ministry. It's not only when you speak, therefore, of the ascension where he's gone. It's much more than that. It's what he's doing now that he's there. And what he's doing is, is ministering grace to the saints. He's interceding for the saints. In other words, you can be assured he hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't left us to ourselves. No, rather, I say again, along with Christ, it is to our advantage that he goes to the Father. For now, he comes to us in the fullness of his spirit and his grace. And as he ministers to us, he does so not in the weakness of his human flesh, but in the fullness of his exalted glory from heaven. Do you see your advantage? Do you see why it's better that he leaves and goes to the Father? What do we find in the Gospels? We find one who's limited, one who is confined in an earthly way. The reality is, while he dwelt among us, there were only so many that he could help, just a few in reality. But here he is, and consider him now as he dwells and reigns from heaven, exalted and glorified. And what do we find now? We find one who is able to help and to support all who draw near to him in faith. Not a few here and a few there dwelling in Palestine, but all who dwell to him uh, or, or who draw near to him and all at the same time, all through the same powerful ministry. No such earthly limitation limits him now. He can now minister grace to as many as he likes all at once. Yes, it is to our advantage that he goes to the Father. But seeing him like this, we ask, what are we to do? You see, in a sense, we could say we're like these men in the same position. Just as soon as Jesus went out of their view, their position became exactly what ours is. They could no longer behold him with their eyes, nor can we. And never again until he comes again in glory will we be able to do so. Well, listen to these two men. Don't just stand there gazing heavenward. In other words... This is what they're actually saying, and this is something we have to take to heart. It would actually be a mistake to focus too much on his return. Now, we can be tempted in both ways. We can be, uh, we can be so focused on his, on his return that we're of no earthly good, or we could forget about it altogether. But really, they're telling them to avoid both temptations with the emphasis on the temptation to just keep gazing heavenward. The very moment he left, he was gone, and they wanted him there with them. But the angels say, don't just stand there. You know he's coming again. He, didn't he tell you? But have you forgotten what he said? And do you see how his going to the Father actually equips you for the very thing he told you to look for? The coming of the promise of the Father. For as he goes to the Father, so he will strengthen you from heaven and visit you with power. The very thing he promised. And not very long from now, we find Peter preaching this very thing. In Acts chapter 2. Well that's the message that we need to hear as well. We need these two men to speak to us. We need to see our station. We need to see our relation to Jesus Christ. Now that he's gone out of sight. We need to see our immeasurable privilege. And the power of God that is at work in us. Ephesians chapter 1. We've been united to him. God by faith after a spiritual manner. Has raised us even into the heavenlies. Along with him. Where our life is now hid with Christ. He is at work in us. 
and by us powerfully from heaven. He's interceding for us. He's equipping us for all things. He's protecting and preserving us. That's our relationship to him. That's his relationship to us. And I ask you, what else is there? What else could we possibly want from him? What else could we need? Are we not as a result of this knowledge? Prepared along with these disciples to do all for him. Even to die if we must. In order that we might be witnesses for him. On this earth. Until he comes again. Or until we die. Whichever comes first. Is there anything we wouldn't do for him? And is there anything he couldn't do for us? As Burroughs says. uh, We read this in the book study. Who is to tell the kind of burden we might bear? If we are strengthened by the strength of Christ, well, that's the message of the ascension. The church is about to be and continue to be strengthened with the strength of Christ from heaven. That's the message the church needs to hear until he returns. Christ is in heaven and we will soon be with him. And if not, by death, he will appear before our eyes from heaven. And we are to look for that, to hope for that, to earnestly expect it in faith. But until then... We ought not to gaze into heaven endlessly, for there is work to do. And blessed is that servant who is busy about his master's work when he returns. Amen. And let us return now, praise to God, by standing and singing together another ascension hymn, now hymn 370 from the Psalter hymnal. And please stand.